Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar will sponsor your next private event. Walters is located right across the street from the ballpark in Navy Yard. Register at waltersdc.com and click the Inquire Now button. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He's running this time. The 2-2 is blasted to right center field and deep. Call chasing back, looking up, and it is gone. It is Pete Alonso 5, and the Nationals 1. He has driven in all five Mets runs with two homers. That a line smash over the right center field wall is 30th of the season. Here's Jamer Candelario. DH tonight swings and hits one sharply toward the middle. Deflects off the mound and off the glove of the lunging, reaching Francisco Lindor into center field. Candelario is going to try for two, and he is called out in second base on the tag by McNeil when it seemed Candelario might have come off the bat. And he hurt himself. He appears to have hurt his left hand on the play, or his ankle, I'm not sure which. Left shoulder. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 29th. 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at City Field in New York City. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So we on Friday night in game two of a four-game series for the Nats at the New York Mets had a battle of the Nats' ace of the past versus potentially the Nats' ace of the future, Mackenzie Gore versus Max Scherzer. Unfortunately, the former ace taught the perhaps future ace a lesson. Gore three runs in five innings. Scherzer one run in seven innings, seven strikeouts. Pete Alonso had a three-run homer and a two-run homer. The Nats lost 5-1, fell to 43-61. and But with the 2023 MLB trade deadline coming up this Tuesday, we also had on Friday night a uh, bit of a scare. The Nats' top trade ship, Jamer Candelario, getting banged up in the top of the eighth. He had a one-out first pitch single on a grounder off the mound and into shallow right center field, an odd play. He then got tagged out in an attempt to stretch the single into a double. He came off the second base bag, and he got hurt on the play, or did he? Mark Zuckerman, not long ago, was speaking with Jamer Candelario. What do we know about Jamer and what happened here on Friday night? Well, like everybody else watching on TV, Al, me watching in person had the same reaction like, oh no, you got to be kidding me. He did feel something. It was an awkward slide. He needed to get his left hand onto the base to make sure he held the base. And in doing so, he bumped into the umpire, Vic Carapaza, and in doing that, felt something in his shoulder. And so he was nervous. He could see him motioning for the trainer to come out there. 
the good news, after that initial scare, he said he feels fine. He went back in the cage. He actually took some swings. The crazy part of this was he was DHing in this game, not playing third base. So he never officially came out of the game. And if somehow his spot came up again in the lineup, if the boys battled enough in the ninth and his spot came up again, it sounds like he would have hit. So he was all smiles afterwards. His frustration was that he was thrown out on the play, not that he was hurt. But boy, for a few seconds there, all of Mike Rizzo's trade deadline plans uh, suddenly looked very different, did it not? Boy, it has been a rough month of July physically for Jamer Candelario. He already in this month of July has dealt with a right thumb bone bruise. He hurt his left thumb. He hurt his right knee. And now he had what happened to him on Friday night. You know, it's a funny deal with uh, trade chips because you almost never see this. And yet it would make some sense, especially if you are a bad team, a rebuilding team, and you know with near certainty that you're going to be trading someone. Why not sit him out in the days leading up to a trade deadline? Like you'll see a team hold a guy out on like the day of the trade deadline, maybe the night before. But you never would see like, hey, just shut Jamer down until Tuesday, okay? And, and let's say, hey, thanks for your work here, but you know we're going to trade you, and we don't want to risk you getting hurt. Teams don't ever really do that, do they? No, I don't think I've ever seen that. I, I suppose if you were going to go that far, you might as well just trade him right now for whatever the best offer is. I guess the thought is that him playing well could help convince somebody, hey, let's go all in on him. He's playing really well right now, something like that. Usually teams have scouts in the stands in those final few days checking a guy out and seeing what they see in him. But I think beyond that, it's just sort of not the code. It's not the way they do it. It would be very difficult for them to tell Jamer Candelario right now not to take the field. He wants to play every day. And you've seen him play through a lot of stuff this month, as you just outlined. That's the irony of all this is that Davey thought he was giving him a break in this game by having him DH instead of play third base. It hasn't happened often this year. He's done that. He thought, well, take him off his feet relax a little bit. No, instead, he ends up having that happen. And I asked him about everything he's gone through this month and Jamer started laughing. He knows what he's been through. Only he knows physically what he feels like right now. But he is a gamer. He wants to be out there every single day. And I give him credit. Look, you can question whether he should be trying to stretch that single into a double in that situation, down four runs in the eighth inning and understanding what his situation is coming up in the next few days. But the baseball player in him wouldn't allow him to hold back. He wanted to do something that he thought would be good for the team. And that's who he's been. And it's why they've enjoyed him so much here. It's not just the production, the way he plays the game. He's really been an enjoyable player to have here. And if they do end up losing him before Tuesday, a lot of people are going to have fond memories of him here because of what he did and the way he went about it. He's done a really good job. And for a one-year, $5 million contract, it is hard to have any real complaints about the job that he has done. Well, Mackenzie Gore was an ad starting pitcher in this 5-1 loss at the Mets on Friday night. Like I said, three runs in five innings. It was a similar game to what we've been seeing lately, especially with Gore and Josiah Gray. Gore put a lot of guys on base in this game. He was sort of playing with fire for a good chunk of the game. He, over the five innings, gave up five hits, a homer and four singles, issued four walks. He threw 95 pitches. He only had two strikeouts, too, which was uh, un-McKenzie Gore-like this season. But when you look at how what went down went down, he tossed four scoreless innings. He was an out away from five scoreless innings. So he was doing what Josiah Gray has been doing, putting guys on base, but you know, overall demonstrating good run prevention. 
And then came what happened in the bottom of the fifth, him allowing three runs. He began the bottom of the fifth by issuing back-to-back walks of the Mets' numbers eight and nine batters, Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez. And then came the big blow, the first of two big blows by Pete Alonso in this game. Gore gave up a two-out, three-run homer by Alonso on a moonshot to the second deck in left center field for a 3 nothing Mets lead. The homer went a projected 453 feet per stat cast. So like a lot of recent Nats outings, this one was going okay, although, you know, in the back of your mind, you're saying to yourself, man, he is putting a lot of guys on base. And then things fell apart in that fifth inning. Yeah. So we can look at the results and say he was doing things well, kind of like we've done with Josiah Gray. But even more than Josiah, it really felt like he was just tempting fate in this one. He faced 23 batters. He only threw first pitch strikes to eight of the 23. That's a recipe for disaster. And pitching with traffic on the bases every single inning, never had a one, two, three inning. That takes a toll on you, especially for a young guy. Every pitch is high stress, high leverage. And he got away with it for four innings and he almost got away with it for a fifth. But that's a hard way to go about this. And I do think in the long run, that's something he and Josiah Gray have to get better at. You've got to have some clean innings, some quick innings along the way. When you're constantly pitching out of trouble, always out of the stretch, always worried about a guy on base, it is going to have a physical and mental toll on you. And it felt like that sort of caught up to him by the end of the night. But it's really the walks. I mean, I understand he hung a slider to Pete Alonso. We saw what happened. That's what Josiah Gray has been so great at not giving up this year. But again, that's tough to avoid making one bad mistake at night. It's going to happen. It's the two walks that preceded it, the eight and nine hitters to lead off the inning. And I think at the end of the night, that's what McKenzie was more upset about because he had been better recently at limiting the walks. And it came back to haunt him again this one. He walked the number nine hitter Alvarez twice, walks the eight hitter Beatty to lead off that inning. We've seen with Max Scherzer, you give up a solo homer, it's not the end of the world. That's exactly what happened to Scherzer in this game. You walk two batters and then give up a three-run homer, that's when you get in trouble. Yeah, Gore was coming off a good outing. The 6-1 win over the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park last Sunday afternoon. Five scoreless innings, eight strikeouts in that game. He gave up just four hits in that game, issued two walks, although he did throw a decent number of pitches in that game. Five innings, 90 pitches. Would you say with what we've seen from Gore this season, and you know, he's been up and down. I still would say it's been more good than bad, but you know, the numbers aren't great on the year. Do you think the Nats internally feel better, worse, or about the same about Gore now as compared to how the organization felt about Gore coming into this season? I think they feel probably about the same because I think they have seen enough of the good, and the good has been really good. Let's be clear about that. His best starts have been the best starts of anybody in this rotation this year, better than Josiah Gray's best starts. It's about the consistency of it and the high pitch counts and all that stuff that we're just talking about. So I think a lot of people view him in the same way they viewed Josiah Gray last year and understanding it's going to be a learning year. There may be some bumps along the way, but it's all about keeping him healthy, getting him as many innings as you can, and learning some lessons along the way. And I think in this case, there's been enough of those, not just good starts, but great starts from him that underscores what they always felt like and confirms what they always felt like about him. Now, if he has a similar year next year, then you start to worry a little bit and think, okay, maybe he's got some things that he still needs to figure out. But if this is you know, really his first full big league season, I think the good 
there has been enough to justify what they've believed in him. Now it's a matter of taking that next step, having more consistently good starts and limiting the damage in the bad ones, which we have seen Josiah Gray do this year. So if next year goes for Gore the way that this year has gone for Gray, I think they'll be really pleased with it. In some ways, I think they may believe he may even be better than Josiah is next year. Yeah. I mean, I would say that Gore now is ahead of where Gray was last year. I mean, it certainly feels that way, but there certainly are things for Gore to work on. He does walk a lot of guys. You know, his whip now on the year is at 145, and he's not eating up many innings. I mean, Gore and Gray, each guy has started 21 games this season. Gray, who is not eating up a ton of innings, has totaled 118 and a third innings. Gore is at 106 innings. I mean, so, you know, a pretty good chunk of innings fewer than Gray, even though Gray, like I said, not exactly an innings eater. But, you know, as we know, this is part of the process. There are going to be nits to pick. I think it's great that each guy has stayed healthy, especially Gore, given what went down with him from a physical standpoint last year. I think that might be the biggest positive of all, that the guy's made 21 starts, knock on wood has been just fine. I mean, what's probably going to end up happening, especially with Gore, they're going to have to end his season unless an injury ends his season. Like, I've got to imagine we're getting close to whatever workload limit is on Mackenzie Gore. And if he continues to stay healthy, what? Early, mid-September, they might have to shut him down. Is that conceivable? It's conceivable. I think they would like to push it beyond that. But to do that, they're going to have to skip a start somewhere along the way. I think they will try to do that based on how the scheduling all works out. So that's probably in the cards at some point. And then I think they'd like to get him into maybe mid-September before they have to worry about shutting him down. You know, they did get Josiah Gray a little further than they wanted to last year, but he was fine. He was healthy. He was doing well enough that they said, okay, let's keep pushing it until really up until the last, I think, week or two of the season. That was the case. So knock on wood, he stays healthy. I think they're okay giving him another, say, seven starts maybe if they can space him out a little bit because you don't want to go too far this year, but you also want to set a good baseline for next year so that he can increase that number by whatever total they have comfortable in their minds. So I, I don't think you want to be overly cautious here, especially when he's been feeling well all throughout it. What I always wonder about is, okay, like we say workload limit, what exactly is that? Is it innings? Is it pitches? Is it high stress innings slash pitches? Because if the latter is the case, with Gore putting so many guys on base, he is having a lot of high-stress innings, high-stress pitches. You wonder if that is maybe altering the calculus on what exactly that workload limit is. We'll see. Hey, Nats Chat. Beyonce is performing at FedEx Field on Saturday, August 5th, and no surprise, it is expensive. We can help, though, by using the special promo code for Nats Chat with the Game Time app. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for events like this one for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data, 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The kick and the pitch. Swing a chopping ground ball toward the middle. Lindor has it to the bag himself. And the throw on the first in time. A double play. And the game is over. The Mets have taken the first two games of this four-game series as Lindor completes a 6-3 double play to end the ball game. Three Nats relievers on Friday night combined to allow two runs in three innings. We saw Andres Machado, a perfect bottom of the sixth. Rico Garcia was the man who gave up the runs bottom of the seventh. He allowed two runs. He gave up a two-out opposite field single by Francisco Lindor to left center and then gave up the second Pete Alonso homer of the game, a two-out, two-run homer by Alonso to center field for a 5-1 Mets lead, despite Alonso having been down at 1.02. This homer only went, and I put the word only in quotation marks, 423 feet per stat cast, and then Corey Abbott, a scoreless spot of the eighth, despite giving up a single and a walk. Pete Alonso has such an interesting statistical profile. We've seen guys like this before, clearly, but Alonso now this season... 30 home runs, a slugging percentage of 514, but a batting average of just 220. Like one of the classic cases of how you can't just look at batting average. And in a lot of ways, especially with a guy like this, you really should just ignore batting average because it doesn't come close to telling you the story. I mean, he's one of the most fearsome hitters in the sport. He has killed the Nats in recent years. 30 bombs. I mean, you know, that moonshot, that first homer on Friday night was something. But yeah, he's got that Kyle Schwarber thing of a like rock bottom batting average, 220. And yet he's a lot better than just a quote unquote 220 hitter. Sure. I don't think we're talking Dave Kingman here. I think this is a different kind of hitter and, and someone who in 2023, it's an acceptable stat line. Now that said, you know, I don't follow the Mets every day, but I'm sure that there has been some frustration that he's maybe not coming through in some other situations of consequence. It's kind of all or nothing with the home runs. Home runs are great, but sometimes you do need an RBI single as well, and he hasn't been quite as good at that kind of stuff. If the rest of their lineup is producing the way that it's supposed to, you live with this. But I mean, he's their number three hitter in this game with those numbers. And because of injuries and the other guys not performing, I still feel like they probably view this as, I'm not going to call it a disappointing season, but not as good a season as it should be for a guy with 30 homers on July 28th. Well, he's like the anti-Nats player, right? Because the Nats have a bunch of guys who are the exact opposite of this. Some decent batting averages, even some you know good on-base percentages, but ain't nobody slugging no 514 on the Nats. Ain't nobody threatening no 30 homers on the Nats. I mean, getting to 20 homers uh, for some guys will be enough for this team this season in terms of like what you realistically are going to accomplish. Well, with the Nats offense on Friday night, this was a second consecutive lackluster game. The Nats offense in the 5-1 and one homestand was good in the five wins for sure. 
But so far in this series, not so good. The Nats on Friday night, just one run, eight hits. We had a home run, two doubles, and five singles. The Nats drew just two walks, went 0 for 4 with runners in scoring position. I mentioned Max Scherzer. He was good. You know, he's not having a very good season. His ERA for the season is still over 4, 401. But we saw vintage Max in this game on Friday night. Again, one run, seven innings, seven strikeouts. But I tell you, I had to laugh at the guy who really got to Max in this game, Luis Garcia. Small sample size, yes, but Luis Garcia has been a Max Scherzer killer in Luis's career. Now, we know Garcia is not having a good month of July at all. He overall is not having a good season from a batting standpoint. But Davey Martinez on Friday night had Garcia, who lately has been batting in the eighth spot, batting in the sixth spot. And that strategy proved to be wise. Luis Garcia went three for four with a solo homer, a double, and a single. He, in the top of the second, had a one-out double off Max Scherzer to right field. Garcia, in an at's one-run seventh, a leadoff homer to center field off Max Scherzer, 406 feet for StatCast. Garcia improved to 6 for 11 in his regular season career against Max. And then Garcia with the uh, cherry on top of the Sunday in the top of the ninth, a one-out single to right field on a 1-2 pitch. How and why is this the case that Luis Garcia has, like, owned Max Scherzer? So I asked him afterwards because obviously it's not the guy that you're thinking that's going to be the case. And when he's had so much hard time hitting other guys, why is it that he's so good against a three-time Cy Young Award winner and future Hall of Famer? And he smiled and he said, he knows it's Max Scherzer and maybe that helps him focus a little more. You know, it's funny. So much about what we hear with Garcia is about focus and not – remember in the field, all that about don't take – pitches off and stay engaged all the time. Maybe there's some of that at the plate. And when you're facing a big time guy like Scherzer, that actually brings out the best in you because you are locked in and wanting to do well and trying to do well. Now, it's also, as he pointed out, Scherzer's a good fastball pitcher. Garcia's a good fastball hitter. The ball that he hit out was a fastball up in the zone. That's the kind of pitch that Luis can do damage on. But it was really nice to see. You would hope that maybe this could jumpstart him a little bit because he has not been very good, like you said. He knows it. He said, Davey said, that maybe this could be a little boost for his confidence. We'll have to see how it goes the rest of the weekend, but he could certainly use something like that. And maybe this is the thing that gets him going again because, you know, when it's all said and done, we need to get to the end of the season and say, is Luis Garcia the answer or not at second base? And I'm not sure we really know the answer to that question at this point. No, we don't. You know, it's funny. There was a period of time, and it wasn't that long ago, that you could argue Garcia was having the best offensive season out of himself, C.J. Abrams, and K.Bert Ruiz. You're not saying that now. Abrams and Ruiz have had great Julys. Garcia hasn't. And, you know, with Abrams and Ruiz, there is a capital. uh, There is a benefit of the doubt that those guys are going to get that Luis Garcia is not going to get. I mean, Ruiz just signed an eight-year extension a few months back. Abrams was a very highly touted prospect and is showing improvement. Garcia has never been viewed in that same way. Like he's been viewed as a nice prospect. I think he, you know, he deserves credit for sort of fighting his way into this position. But there's nothing set in stone with him. And, you know, he's a guy who, if he continues to struggle this season, you do wonder what the organizational outlook on him is going to be going into next year. But good for him for having a very nice game against Max Scherzer on Friday night. But that was basically the Nats offense in this game. Garcia had three of the Nats, eight hits. He was responsible for the lone run. And otherwise, there just wasn't much going on. Lane Thomas, who we talked about on the previous installment of the show, his bad July continued. Thomas on Friday night, 0 for 4 
with three strikeouts. We had Corey Dickerson as the Nats' number five batter in this game, 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. I wanted to ask you this. So Joey Manessis got the day off. That's why Jamer Candelario was the designated hitter. Ildemaro Vargas was the Nats' starting third baseman. Look, Vargas, when he has played, has been productive. But man, I said to myself before the game, we just talked a few episodes ago about Riley Adams and opportunities to get Adams more plate appearances. It seems to me, if you're going to give Manessis a night off, why couldn't you have had Riley Adams as your starting DH? I mean, obviously, that's not what Davey did. It felt like that was something, though, that could have done and would have made some sense. Yeah, I think this was more about wanting to keep Jamer Candelario in the lineup, but take a little bit off of him. As it turned out, like we said, he still had an injury scare. I think the idea there was let him DH and take a break. I think then you could say, why not have Manessis at first base instead of Dom Smith, who was 0 for 17 in his career against Max Scherzer entering this game. But to his credit, Dom Smith drew a walk and then doubled finally for his first career hit off of Max. So, you know, good for that. But he was hitting eighth in this game, which tells you something as well. The Vargas thing is interesting to me. The conspiracy theorist in me said, maybe they want to show teams out there that, hey, don't forget about Ildemaro Vargas. He's a good quality utility infielder. We're going to put him out there at third base and put him in the lineup. And maybe you'll notice him because come Tuesday, you might be interested in him. Maybe that's overthinking it and it wasn't anything like that. But part of me in the back of my mind couldn't help but at least have that thought. It's possible. I mean, you know, after Candelario, I think it's wide open who you could identify as the number two most likely Nat to be traded on Tuesday. As we've discussed, it may be that nobody else gets traded, but if you had to set like Vegas odds for Nats players to be traded, who's your number two? You could argue it is Vargas, you know, like we've talked about it for a while here. I think it could be him and maybe it ends up being Candelario and Vargas and that's it. And like you end up holding on to everybody else. Uh, We'll see. Hopefully, Candelario stays healthy until Tuesday. Uh, Now, you got to wonder. It has been a weird month uh, with him getting banged up as he has been getting banged up. Well, we have some uh, moments here to go through some emails. You can always email the show, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We have to share this. Our friend, Rich Park, he is a Nationals fan who has been in Korea. And we have joked with him about potentially downloading this podcast in the demilitarized zone. Now, it's been a joke, although Rich has actually said he's tried to do it. Although, you know, we we don't want to get Rich in trouble. We certainly don't want to get him harmed in any way. So, you know, hopefully uh, he's doing all right. But he wrote to us about a game that he attended and he wore his Nats Chat podcast t-shirt at the game. The game was a KBO game and he sent us a great looking photo. But he also noted this, Eric Fetty is killing it (laughs) in the KBO this season. Eric Fetty, for those who don't know, did not sign with another team this past offseason. He signed with a team in Korea. And according to Rich, Fetty is a candidate for the KBO version of the Cy Young Award. So go figure. Eric Fetty is conquering the KBO. I've been following this since early in the year. He had a dominant start, like eight scoreless innings, I think early in the year. And I believe he was an all-star there. He was sporting a mustache at one point. I don't know if that's still true or not, but good for him for going over there and finding success that unfortunately he never had in the United States. Now, I don't know what that will lead to ultimately for him, if he'll get another shot from somebody, if they watch him and say, hey, maybe he's figured something out. But whatever it is, what Eric Fetty is throwing in Korea is working against that league. And it was very cool to see the photo that Rich sent us where he is sitting. He, he didn't realize this. He's sitting behind the plate and like in plain view of this the regular center field camera that shows every pitch. So we've got photos of Eric Fetty pitching and Rich Park 
sitting in like the third row behind the plate in his Nats Chat t-shirt. How cool is that? That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm happy for Eric Fetty. I mean, things may not have worked out in MOB, but if they're working out in the KBO, then good for him. Interesting email from R. Owen Ranger on a guy who we've talked about regarding the trade deadline. Lane Thomas writes, R. Owen, Mike Rizzo has only traded away two non-rentals. Talking about, you know, this recent incarnation of the Nats being sellers and not buyers. And he says, well, both of those non-rentals who got traded happen to be superstars in Trey Turner and Juan Soto. And kind of the point of the email is don't be expecting Lane Thomas to be traded. Don't even assume necessarily that that would be what is in the best interest of the Nats. It is true. I mean, the Nats have not been super willing to trade away guys who aren't on expiring contracts. And, you know, certainly the Juan Soto circumstance was almost like this very unique circumstance all into its own. Trey Turner, you know, legitimately was a guy under contract for another season and then was going to go into free agency. The difference, though, obviously would be Lane is not Juan. Lane is not Trey, although this season Lane is actually better than Trey. But that's another conversation. I think it is tricky with Lane Thomas because we brought up the Kent Rosenthal report on the last show of how other rival executives supposedly are viewing Lane Thomas. And he is one of those guys where it's like glass half full, glass half empty. Like you can build the case for, yeah, no, he's a good player and he's a piece for the future. You also could build a case for he does a lot of the damage against lefties. And realistically, you know, is he anything better than like a really good number four, maybe number three outfielder? And I wonder deep down inside, what does Mike Rizzo truly think of Lane Thomas? We know what Mike says, but deep down inside, what does he truly think of Lane? I think he might feel some of what you're describing there. I don't know that he sees what Lane is doing this year as this is the guy he's going to be for years to come. Now, that said, I think we've seen enough, and we mentioned this the other night. It's not just this year. He did it when he was first acquired. He did it at times last year. Because he is affordable and under control, and you just don't know if and when these kids are going to be ready and what they're going to turn into, I think the way that Mike looks at this is he's not trying to trade Lane Thomas. Now, if somebody called him up and said, hey, I really like this guy, and I'm going to offer you a significant package for him, then you consider it. And you know, think about the Soto and the Turner trades. Rizzo was willing to go there with that because he felt like that was his only way to get big-time prospects in return. The feeling was that Max Scherzer alone was not going to get Josiah Gray and Caber Ruiz. Once he added Trey Turner with his multiple years of control, that's how he pulled that off. Obviously, Juan Soto was going to bring back one of the biggest hauls in trade deadline history. Now, Lane Thomas isn't going to command that. But the control does at least offer the possibility of getting something more significant back than you're going to get for a a Jamer Candelario who's only under contract for two more months. So I think that's the line there, that if somehow the extra control of the guy could net you big-time players in return, then you look to do it. I think the question here is, is anybody out there willing to give up that much for a guy who there's some question about what kind of player is he really? You know what you're getting in Juan Soto, or at least Padres thought they knew what they were getting in Juan Soto. You don't really know exactly what you're getting in Lane Thomas if you acquire him and the next two years of him. Yeah. And it doesn't help that he's not having a good July. I mean, I don't think that if you're an executive, you should let one bad month sweeten or sour you on someone. But you know, especially with a guy like Lane, who is maybe kind of a 50-50 guy. Again, you could make the case one way, you could make the case the other way. You know, in July, batting 240, 282 on base, 354 slugging 
if you have this concern of, well, the success he's had this season isn't really who he is, and now he's having this bad month of July, you know, that maybe sort of drags you into the territory of thinking, yeah, I don't know if we want to be giving away much of anything for this guy. It's fascinating, man. The trade deadline is always so interesting. For years, it was interesting in an entirely different way for the Nats because they were buyers. Now it's more about sellers. But, you know, we're kind of getting used to this, right? 2021, the big fire sale. Last year, the big Juan Soto trade. And this year, I think extreme uncertainty in a way that we have never had before. In 21, we were pretty sure some trades were about to be made. Now, maybe it was surprising how all in the Nats went on the fire sale, but we knew that a fire sale to some extent was coming. Last year, by the time we got to August 2nd, we knew Juan Soto was being traded. It wasn't a surprise at that point. This year, I feel like there's as much mystery as ever in terms of really beyond Candelario. We don't know, and it could go in a variety of ways. Yeah, it could go a variety of ways. I still deep down feel like it's not going to be that eventful. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Rizzo has done this one and played it close to his vest and we're going to see Finnegan and Thomas and Trevor Williams or something like that get moved before Tuesday. I don't sense that that's where they're going, but you know, maybe he goes in the opposite direction. Like I suggested the other day, I found my guy. I found my reliable major league reliever that I want them to buy at the trade deadline. He pitched in this game. His name's Adam Adovino. The Mets are in full sell mode right now. Adam Adovino has a 3.48 ERA, 44 appearances, good, solid, reliable reliever. He's making about two and a half million the rest of the year. Free agent next year. Send a single A prospect to the Mets and bring in Adam Adovino to solidify the bullpen for the rest of the year. That's insane if they do that. I, I will lead the riot <laughs> if, in fact, the Nats do that. I, and I like Adovino, but yeah, sign him this offseason. Please do not trade for him this year. Well, we shall see. Before we say goodbye, a salute to Montgomery County Little League for winning the Maryland State title. Moco is headed to Connecticut, two wins away from Williamsport. So that would be quite cool. Montgomery County representing this area in the Little League World Series. Especially so because if they do get to Williamsport, you know who's going to be in Williamsport? The Washington Nationals and yours truly. They are playing the Little League Classic against the Phillies on August 20th, I believe. And I actually am starting to make my travel plans for that to go up there and be a part of that Sunday morning at the Little League World Series. How remarkable would it be if a local team was playing there while the Nationals are in town. So let's go, kids. Come on, make this thing happen. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We'd love to see that. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our website too, NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Check out his site, timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Needs this out. Two balls, two strikes. Here he comes. Strike three called. Cutter at the belt over the outside, and Eric Fetty pulls another Houdini act out of the hat.